Hello, welcome to The Elephant, made with the support of the Climbkick Alumni Association. I'm Kevin Kaners. Well, if there's one thing I think we know for sure, it's that the old way of conducting business clearly doesn't work. A huge part of our economy runs on the back of big corporations, whose business models, while sustainable when it comes to profits, are anything but when it comes to their effect on the environment. To take just the most extreme example, think of the business model of the fossil fuel companies. Either they radically transform their entire mode of operations, or go bankrupt, or the planet tanks. So we have two options. Either we make new companies whose business model is both profitable and sustainable to replace the old companies, or we change the entire system so that the previous way of doing things is no longer profitable or tenable. But while system change may or may not be coming down the pipeline soon, there's an institution that's helping do the former, create new sustainable businesses, and that would be Climate Kick. In full disclosure, as you can probably tell from the name, they've been indirectly sponsoring us for this podcast through their alumni association. Climate Kick is a large European public-private partnership, and essentially what it does is help newly formed entrepreneurs and businesses whose idea or invention helps tackle climate change and assist them by connecting them with mentorship, development, and business partners. They do this as well as run education programs, for example, to train business leaders in sustainability. Climate Kick was started in 2009, and its president for four years was Mary Ritter. We sat down to talk to her in Paris about Climate Kick and what role sustainable business models can play in tackling the climate crisis. Here's a conversation. Mary Ritter, welcome to The Elephant. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you explain in a really simple way for someone who knows nothing about business, nothing about climate change, what does Climate Kick do? Very good question. Um, right now, it's about 250 partners across the whole of Europe. Um, it's a big, very active um, public-private partnership. Um, partners from big corporates, small and medium enterprises, universities, city, regional councils. And we run an innovation um, pipeline. So that our goal really is to take more innovation and faster right through to market to address climate change, mitigation and adaptation. So does that mean if I'm an entrepreneur or if I'm a business leader and I have an idea, then Climate Kick would help me fund it or develop it? We'd help you with a bit of funding and very much on the development side. So we have big projects that are run by consortia of business with universities. Um, but we also take in startups. So as you suggest, if you've got your, an idea or if you've already got a little company, you can come. We have an accelerator where we take startups through from the business idea, introducing them to finding their first customers and then introducing them to, to venture capitalists and getting their first external funding. And we've now had um, something like, I think, 94 startups that have raised well over uh, about 150 million um, euros of external funding. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what we need to do generally, your, your philosophy uh, more generally about how we actually go about tackling this problem. Because, of course, like things have started building like Climate Kick or other things over the past you know, 10 plus years, but emissions have still kept growing. We're still kind of in really hot water. What are your thoughts on what we need to do to start churning the ship? It is really urgent. You're absolutely right. I think you have to attack it at a lot of different levels. And I actually think that the hardest level to attack it at is the, the national level. Because in a democracy, your governments are only in for between three and five years. And so inevitably, they have a short-term horizon. 
And what's becoming very obvious, and I, in fact, saw on the net this morning, um, it's happening in Paris too, that actually if you go down a few layers, like if you go to regions or if you go to cities, um, and they're really the places where you see the reality of climate change and a major responsibility lies, there is a lot of activity going on. So I think one has to address it at all levels. You must address it at the national level, obviously, but, but at, at lower levels of government. But you have to address it through business. And it's fairly clear that the sort of um, economy, market economy, we have at the moment is not really working in terms of climate change. But you can have a green economy. And it's also becoming very clear that um, economists are getting quite um, concerned what will happen to those companies that don't adjust to, uh, to climate change. And in fact, it's more of a threat now. And the opportunity is to not just to make your, um, your company efficient, but actually you can really do things and make profit out of climate change and, and, and do good in, um, in many more, more ways than just, just addressing climate change. It's good for the economy. It's good for jobs as well. So I was curious about the kind of dilemma that business brings when it comes to climate change, because on the one hand, you know, of course, at least in some ways, it can be part of the, the solution, either like green companies uh, or companies becoming more sustainable, sourcing their energy sustainably. But on the other hand, business in a lot of senses is, is the cause of the problem. And, you know, we have so many institutions that have really kind of dragged their feet trying to stop any action on climate change. We other things about Exxon having known about the threat of climate change and then kind of working to undermine the science in public and various things like that. So can we leave it to business itself or what are your thoughts on that? Because it seems it only works as long as it happens to align with the business's self-interest. What you say highlights absolutely the crux of the problem, which is that if you look across the whole spectrum of business, then those businesses that understand and will benefit from addressing climate change tend to be the small to medium-sized businesses, um, the very innovative ones. And those that tend to lose out from climate change are those really big multinationals that have a lot of power. There are a lot of data. The OECD has shown that there are there's billions of dollars poured into uh, subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. Um, and that basically I think that is where you actually need national governments to act. Um, you have to change the, the whole subsidy system so that you're not favouring um, those big industries. And some of them are beginning to certainly make the right noises and to realise that things are going to have to change. And there will be a lot of money to make out of renewable sources of energy. So the smart company will be switching to that. Are you surprised that we haven't seen any oil companies make that switch or any, any companies that are heavily tied to the current uh, status quo, the way of doing things, that they haven't changed? Like we've seen some things with like BP or Shell kind of what I consider greenwashing over the past decade, but we haven't really seen an energy company really make that switch accounting for where we need to go. That's absolutely right. And I know some are doing some research behind the scenes, but nonetheless, the, the big push has been, I guess the big push has been moving from very dirty fuel, which is coal, into less dirty fuel, like natural gas, which produces something like half the, the CO2 pollution. So it's a step in the right direction, but it's certainly not far enough. And still a fossil fuel. And it's still fossil fuel, absolutely. Um, and I think you will see over the next um, 
probably two to five years, quite a shift. I think what will drive it is partly national government, and I think the other thing that will drive it, which is really hitting the coal industry at the moment, is actually the investment sector, because as soon as investments start shifting out of fossil fuels and into renewables, um, then the money will talk. So do you think that things like the divestment movement have made a big difference in, in that particular area? I think they have, and I think they, they certainly seem to be impacting on the coal industry, and there are quite a few coal companies now that are really um, suffering financially. It's not, I think, hitting the oil industry yet, but I would predict that it would. And I think once you've got a movement going, then it will, it will start to accelerate. And you're getting a lot of investment companies now saying, uh, actually overtly, that their remit is to invest in renewables but not in fossil fuels. Well, it's interesting to see that uh, even though the Bank of England, uh, the, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, has been making this case very heavily. He's not exactly a, you know, a radical or a marginal figure. I think that's absolutely right. And it's not... I respect him enormously, but I think he's making that statement from rational economic analysis, not you know necessarily from his heart or from, from principles like that. And I think economically it's going to make a lot of sense to switch to renewables, and I think there will be um, a very good economy based on that. And it's, it's the switch from one to another that's going to be difficult, and you have to manage the employment situation that, that goes with it as well. What do you mean by that? Well, because there will be a lot of people involved in employment in positions in the fossil fuel industry, and you're going to need retraining to, to shift across to alternative forms of energy. And you, ha you may have regions which are very dependent on fossil fuel industry, and it's not necessarily exactly the same region that's then going to switch on to alternative forms. Right. And I guess in order to get them on board, it's important that they realize or are provided with opportunities. That's absolutely right, because really if you, want, um, if you want politicians to do something, you have to get the citizens, the voters on board, and then you'll get a political force to, to get change. I was wondering if you had any examples of particular success stories of companies or startups that have gone through Climate Kick that you'd like to talk about. We've had, yeah, we've had a lot, we've had a lot of successes, I suppose. Well, one example is a startup that came through our German center called Tardo. And Tardo has um, basically developed an app that's a home management energy system um, controlling app, which can compute your movement around your house and how you use the heating and where, where you are at different times, um, together with the, um, the weather outside, etc. And they've now been hugely successful. They have one major rival, which is Nest, the, the Google Nest app. But they're competing very well with it. They raised about 10 million euros in Europe last year, and they've just raised 17 million dollars uh, in the United States this year. It would be for heating your house in the most efficient way? Heating your house in the most efficient ways. So it's to really optimize it for your comfort, but also for the economy in terms of how much energy you use. Yes. Another example from another country, from the UK, a small and medium enterprise called Naked Energy. And Naked Energy um, had developed from outside the kick and then came to us. They got support through um, the UK centre this time. And their product is a combination of, of solar photovoltaic panels 
and also hot water. So often you see on roofs, you'll have separate panels and, and hot water systems, but this is combining the two. And it's something like 45% more efficient. And also it preserves the lifespan of your photovoltaic. And they came to us and we gave them support. We gave them some financial support as well. And they've now really taken off um, and have got um, substantial funding outside. Um, and have been talking with a company to actually go into large-scale production. Um, it also illustrates something else that's really a key strength of the kick, which is it's a long-term partnership for all of the partners in it, and we introduce partners to each other. So the big corporates are really interested in innovation from the small companies, and the universities are interested in getting their discoveries taken through to market, and so on. And for Naked Energy, what the UK Centre did was to introduce them to one of our big corporate partners, which actually is Sainsbury's supermarket, who want to be, I think, the greenest grocer in, in Europe. And Sainsbury's are trialling this photovoltaic uh, hot water system uh, in the roof of, of some of their buildings. Um, so what the small company will say is, well, it's fantastic because you gave us a, a seat at the top table. We would never have been able to introduce ourselves to Sainsbury's on, on our own. Now, you were one of three people to actually pitch this climate kick idea to uh, what's called the EIT. Can you take us back to like, where did the idea for it actually come from? The idea actually came from the European um, Commission. Um, the idea of the, the kicks came from a previous president, um, Barroso, who really worried that Europe um, was not sufficiently entrepreneurial and that you had to have innovation to address big societal challenges. And of course, climate change was a big one. And we had some warning that there was going to be a call from the European Commission and that they were funding it through a new body they call the European Institute for Innovation um, and Technology. So a, a group from several universities had been working together and we started to brainstorm on what we would like to do to address climate change. So we were really prepared, sort of ahead of the call coming out. Um, and then so the call wasn't necessarily for climate change, it was for entrepreneurship? It was, it was, there were three areas they called for, which were energy, ICT, and climate change. So it was about entrepreneurship, but it was focused on those three areas, yeah. And so where did it go from there? There's this call for potential ideas of using entrepreneurship to deal with climate change. What was the next step? What was the evolution? Okay, to cut a long story short, there was a lot of work really brainstorming on what we could do, um, what the challenges were, what um, we could do to address them, building up the partnership so that we had a larger number of universities, we had businesses signed up, we had regions which were very important for us signed up as well. And yes, uh, I was one of the, um, the three-person team. We went to Budapest in the December of 2009. And actually, at the point when the COP talks in Copenhagen were not going well, actually there was one big success, we think, for the climate, which was that we won the bid for, for being Climate Kick. Can you tell me a bit about what you were doing before Climate Kick? Um, yes, I started life as a biomedical scientist and ran a, an international research lab for a long time. And then, as happens often with research scientists in universities, 
um, you get uh, asked to take on other responsibilities, so senior management responsibilities. Well, I guess it evolved, evolved from there. And then I just got more and more involved with it, and I just feel really strongly. This is the biggest challenge that faces the world, and, and we must do something about it. And my final thought, so you are CEO for quite a number of years of Climate Kick. You're now something called the International Ambassador. So can you just tell me a bit about what your plans are next? Like, what do you do now, and what are you working on moving forward? I'm, yes, I'm international ambassador. Um, I took over, having overseen a sort of smooth handover to my successor as CEO, I started as international ambassador in February. And I spent, um, well, at least a month thinking hard, talking to people. The remit really was to um, look at opportunities outside Europe where Climate Kit could enhance its impact since climate change is a global problem, not a European one. And I really thought of a whole scale of opportunities from just single collaborative projects with partners outside Europe, um, developing clusters of partners, maybe a centre outside Europe. And then I guess wildly ambitious, I thought, was to try and establish something like a kick somewhere else. And I was in Australia for various reasons, but we do have one partner there. And I was visiting them and talking to various other people. And the germ of an idea began to develop um, earlier this year that actually it's a country that is hugely impacted by climate change. It has huge opportunities for addressing it. I mean, for example, in the energy sector, um, a lot of coal-based industry now, but of all the countries in the world, I mean, solar energy is... Um, well positioned there. there. Yeah, it's there for the picking. And there was a huge enthusiasm for actually getting on and doing something. And so basically I've been back to Australia, I've visited it three times this year, piggybacking it onto the back of other meetings to try and reduce my own carbon footprint, I hasten to say, and offsetting. And we're now at a point where we can see there are probably 10, 12, 15 organisations across different sectors that are really on board for, for getting this off the ground. We've put in a bid for our first um, set of funding. And we hope to set up a climate kick in Australasia together with um, some parts of New Zealand as well. And we would focus very much on accelerator programs, um, some of the education programs, and then dovetail with the sort of applied research that's going on and to help take innovation through to market. So very exciting and I think we'll have a, a, a sort of partner kick in the other side of the world so that you can really address the problems collectively. Try to get uh, some sustainable businesses going all around the world. Absolutely. Well, I certainly hope it uh, comes through and that Climate Kick continues to help start these sort of things up. Mary Redder, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and uh, thank you very much. That was Mary Ritter, the president of Climate Kick for four years and who's now its international ambassador. So as we mentioned at the start of the episode, in addition to working with sustainability startups, Climate Kick also runs educational programs. And so I spoke to Ibrahim Mohammed, who is the director of education at Climate Kick, about the problems with our current economic models and the role that education has to play in improving them, or if education can improve them at all. But maybe I'll let him introduce himself and what exactly he does. Sure, my name's uh, Ibrahim Mohammed. I'm the Director of Education for Climate Kick. What I do for Climate Kick is look at all of our education activities, uh, working with graduates, working with professionals and entrepreneurs, and make sure that we're offering the best training, best uh, skills development for our community. 
So in a sense, you're, you're in charge of trying to get more sustainability into education in a way? or Yes, uh, we work in this agen- agenda of creating sustainability frameworks and models and uh, education processes around that. So the way I prefer to think about it is that we develop the human capital potential to catalyze a, a change in the kind of um, economy and make sure that we give the right kinds of skills to make these people become successful uh, entrepreneurs and business executives. So you, before you came to Climate Kick, you were in charge of Imperial College's uh, executive MBA program. So I was wondering, how did you get involved with climate change? Was that something you were already concerned about? Um, So I started at Imperial College in the business school as a very young uh, lecturer. Uh, I was age 24 when I started my um, teaching career there. You said 24? Uh, yes, at the age <laughs> That's of That's very young. It, it, it was, because most of my students uh, were older, a lot older than me. But I, I was an expert in my area, which was actually finance and accounting. But I, I did my uh, education uh, at the London School of Economics. And in the London School of Economics, you learn about finance and economics, but there's also a very strong orientation in critical theory. And as part of my own education, I learned about the economic model that we have and the alternatives around that and looking at economic models that valued natural assets really really was an eye-opener for me. So what do you mean by that like right now if we have a forest it doesn't have any value in the system unless we cut it down and turn it into toothpicks is that what you mean? Yes and we we make um, economic financial decisions without any consideration of the externalities and when you count the externalities the effects on clean air and water, there was an assumption that all of these are in, are in abundance and free. But of course, we're realizing that that's actually not the case. And, um, you know, we're depleting some of these natural assets that are actually critical for viable human existence. And looking at different ways of measuring and accounting for these was really the thing that led me to have always in the back of my mind um, that there was something missing in what we were educating. So I pursued a career in in the business school, and we we were educating on finance, but the trend moved away from understanding more deeply and value in this more durable sense. And I think it was only at the time where we had some financial crisis, people start start to think, actually, you know, what what is going on? And then, of course, financial crisis led to some um, other concerns about the depletion of the environment. And... Uh, I was part of the bid team that created Climate Kick in 2009. I was very fortunate to have been picked to be part of that. There were four of us that worked there, and uh, most of us carried on working at Climate Kick. And um, I kept a, a part-time connection with the project. <clears throat> but in in 2013, I decided to make a fundamental shift in my career to pursue this full-time because... Uh, the scale and the issue of climate change became much, much more significant, much, much more quickly than I and I suppose a lot of people had anticipated. And I decided it, it, it was time to uh, be counted. So you were mentioning how the way that business education is currently done is kind of poorly conceived. Can you tell us a bit about, like, for those of us who don't know anything about MBA programs besides the fact that they exist, what would you say the main problems are right now with the way business education is done? So the most fundamental issue is really the the, the model of economics that's really used. Uh, We we promote the 
issue around shareholder value um, and shareholder value is a very good concept but um, within that concept we're starting to evolve more sophisticated understanding. It's great to have a lot of shareholder value, but it's not very good for it to be very risky. So you mean like right now, MBA students would be, they're basically being taught to try to maximize shareholder value above anything else? That's the overriding principle, but uh, we're starting to see now, which is very positive that the business schools are incorporating more risk evaluation, uh, and this is very positive. We've still got one or two phases to go, when we get an economic model that really fully captures and values externalities, maybe through uh, mechanisms like a carbon price, and we can see the value of depleting natural resources like water, then, then I think we'll be in the right space. What we need to really look at is what do we actually mean by value. If it's purely financial and it's purely valuation, then that's actually quite negative uh, because it may have many other hidden issues and risks and externalities which could actually be quite detrimental. Can you give me a concrete example of what you mean by that? So if let's say a, a, an executive is making a, a financial decision about investing in equipment or a facility um, in a certain environment, um, they may make that decision purely on a financial basis. But then that may miss out some other issues. So it might miss uh, issues around environmental degradation or the health and safety of the staffing. And you need to have a much more elaborated and sophisticated analysis that drives value and would create um, more durable and long-term positive outcomes. For society or for the company? For the company, and company uh, is part of a, a society. Now, I know you, you already brought up the idea that uh, there's a problem with how the system values things in general. Um, so we have the, the problem with education and then we have you know, the problem with how this whole entire capitalistic system is set up right now. But I wanted to try this out on you. I mean, to me, it seems like it's the system almost completely. Like even if we educate people to be more sustainable, to take these into account, it seems like the system still, if its values are short-term profit or short-term valuations, mm -hmm. Um, through things like um, stock options and how stock option works, then how are we ever going to make a, a big difference? Yes. I mean, it's, it's a good question. The, the system is probably one of the best systems we've had in terms of creating economic output. and you mean capitalism? Yes. Capitalism is probably the, the best system, but it needs some moderation and some fine-tuning. So to abandon it completely, I think, would be not the right way, actually. It creates, it motivates, and it, it gets up a large proportion of the world to, to work. So I think it's a question of looking at how we can fine-tune it. It's about capitalism 2.0 rather than, you know, completely changing that. Um, I, I think it's a mechanism for exchanging uh, value, that's clear, but the value is just a little bit too focus on, on financial value and not taking the other values. So we've got to think about it also that education is very important. It's education that has been used to create the economy we have, and all of the issues are a function of that. So we can, if we educated our way to the problem, I believe that we can educate our way out of the problem. But what about companies that I mean, I, I obviously see the point for companies where their business model happens to align 
with sustainable practices or sustainable thinking. But of course, we know there's a lot of companies out there whose business model, how it's currently constructed, could never work with a sustainable-minded uh, future. It brings to mind all the the oil companies with, you know, we've had some greenwashing by like BP and Shell, but generally they, they've kind of doubled down on pursuing fossil fuels and betting against a sustainable future. So, so what do we do then? So these companies have great capabilities and competencies, no doubt. I can imagine that the progressive ones will realize that there are changes. We will... It, seems still need some element of fossil fuel energy and and as they are very much part of the problem they will be very much part of the solution do you really think that because they seem to be kicking and screaming right now trying to not move down the the road at least in their lobbying efforts i think it's always the case when there's change there will be some resistance points and then in those situations you know it's a very much a evolutionary process that some companies will start to redeploy some of their assets and thinking in innovation and create new outcomes from that. And and that would be evolution. And those that completely stay in the old framework and thinking, it may work in certain parts of the world for some time. It is quite conceivable. But the the trend is pretty clear. Once you get a, a certain percentage change within an industry, then the rest of the industries will change with that. So the alternative. What do you mean by that? So once we tip a certain percentage of renewable energy, will yeah, kind of the whole it, system tips over? It, it creates um, an economic uh, model for switching. In that case, yes. So yes, it's very much about whilst these new alternative energy resources and systems are being improved, um, you know, some of the old uh, energy models may persist, and we'll certainly be needing them in the transitionary phase. Also, in terms of uh, when we look at this problem internationally, it's slightly different how different countries may play this through this century. I think for society to evolve to a more durable, sustainable future, all of the stakeholders uh, will need to be involved. And everybody has to modify their thinking and behaviors to some extent. Some possibly more than others, but, um, and sometimes it will take some players a bit longer. You always get this in change. There'll be the early adopters, and then eventually um, other people will join on. I'd be curious about your thoughts, though, on this idea that like businesses don't seem to be very um, nimble. They don't seem to be willing to change their, their business model. At least when I look at kind of the recent history, there was an article, I think, in the New York Times I read a few months ago about the person who made the first digital camera, and it was a worker at Kodak in like 1975, and the company had no use for it, right? And it seems in general, or by and large, that most companies are very reticent to change their business model, even when it seems to outsiders quite obvious that the whole world is changing around them. Yeah. And that's what market capitalism um, does do. It, it will uh, uh, penalize those companies, and they may not exist. It's very possible, uh, because their business models may not work in the future. So once you get this new business models that create different kinds of values, um, then you know actually the companies with the old business models will be very challenged to keep up there. But why do you think they're so businesses don't seem to be more flexible or willing to change when it seems so obvious? Like just to give one oil example, like with shell drilling in the Arctic, it wasn't even going to start to come online until 2030. And we know the science tells us that we can't even burn the reserves that we already have, let alone look for new ones. So this seems to be a very curious bet, you know, that we won't take action. 
Yeah, and I think when you look at those kind of... Um, there is always in this change thing, you know, there will be resistance. They'll be thinking that actually, you know, that we'll solve those issues some other way. But they're still essentially doing the old thinking, aren't they? And that's a problem because you have a business model that's worked for a very long time. Uh, you've created lots of value through that. Your shareholders demand you to create value and uh, not to experiment too much. So there's a problem sometimes that large companies uh, find it very hard to change and looking at their shareholder ownership is very important because that sometimes drives the, the kind of decision processes. So there will be a tendency to stay with the same models fundamentally and maybe do a few experiments, but uh, that may not work for very long. You know, can you imagine in five years' time and then think ahead in ten years' time, these instances will become rarer and rarer. And if we take that example, I mean, you can see there's a very negative public relations um, dimension to it, which can also damage your shareholder value. Yes, so these these will be the way I think the companies will become uh, more regulated and start to think about their decisions because sometimes in some markets it becomes quite visible and, and may not be beneficial to companies' long-term interests. Uh, on that note, I'd be curious, as someone within the business world and business education, what your thoughts on the divestment movement are? I think it's clear. I mean, this is a very strong uh, trend and the financial aspect to this is key to driving the change. As I say, we're all part of the problem. We all are linked to this problem. We all have some link to the financial systems, and the financial systems promote this kind of uh, uh, model of sometimes very focused shareholder value. Um, so if disclosure becomes more the norm, uh, if uh, people and uh, institutions start to say, we do not want to be investing in these things which are detrimental to uh, wider things, then I think it will create, and it is already to a point creating, uh, a lot of thinking and a lot of change. But you will always have a lag problem. So even though that's a reality, as you describe it, the world has changed, companies and people and executives take a bit longer to sometimes catch up. And that's where I do believe education can serve a big role. We can show different business models, we can show more progressive, more positive, more futuristic ways of uh, doing value uh, in a broader sense and that itself can lead to change um, so education really drives uh, society it's it's like food and water for society and i think having these examples is a good way of showing positive new ways of making value and more durable value so i think yes we we, we have um, investment we have education and then we have people and if we start to blend these together, if through education we can influence one executive, if we can influence one graduate or one young person, these people are understanding the world in a different way. That's really great. If finance can be changing and it is evolving a more um, a rounded perspective on long-term valuation and creating disclosure and more information around this can change society I do believe, uh, very rapidly. We're at Paris, and I'd be curious what your thoughts on that first point that you brought up of there being sort of systemic errors with how the market is set up right now in that there's all these externalities, the climate is an externality, 
how close do you think we are to getting a, a high price on carbon in throughout the world or at at these talks? Are you optimistic that we're starting to take the steps towards fixing those errors and how it's set up? I think in this COP there's a much stronger alignment and understanding than there's ever been. It would be very good if the outcome is a framework for pricing. Carbon, it brings in the externalities. My feeling is that the world may not even wait for this. People want change and I think also some businesses are realizing that they should take this kind of innovation leap and uh, create new thinking and new models and new values and it will be without uh, an agreement this time the next five years will still be a lot of innovation in this space is my feeling it would be very nice if there is an out, out, uh, output agreement uh, but I think it's only a question of uh, if it will be this or the next COP that will realize that. When we get like a, a fee on carbon? Uh, yeah, and I think we are seeing enormous change uh, all over the world and in Europe. We're noticing uh, in five years enormous amount of change. So we're well on our way, but we've still got, um, I think the COP would be a really good um, milestone. It's not the end game. And well, just to end off, I mean, how do, you, how do you feel? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? Because there do seem to be some positive steps, but we have a lot to go. We need to start turning the ship right now for to have any hope of staying under two degrees. So I guess, how do you feel going forward as someone who's concerned about this issue? It's not going to be an easy challenge, but I think we are at the early stages of uh, defining solutions. So I'm, I'm an optimist. To think about Desmond Tutu, um, I heard him talk on the BBC about the struggles in the early years of the ANC and he said that one thing kept him going and I, I kind of think in the same way that there is this kind of human capability to resolve and to find solutions uh, and and I think the role of education is is critical to that. We, we need to inspire new leadership, new visionary thinking and I think that will be the most fundamental part of the solution. Well Ibrahim, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, thank you. That was Ibrahim Mohammed, the director of Climate Kicks Education Program. And that's all for this episode of The Elephant. The Elephant is made by myself, Kevin Kaners, along with Christina Peters and Matthias Gutz. And as always, we're given support by the Climate Kick Alumni Association. You can find us online at elephantpodcast.org and say hi on Twitter or Facebook. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you soon.